My name is Pastor Jay Hager. It's good to be here with you this morning. I know quite a few of you from days past. Uh, This is how I know Jay Hollis and Matt Bradley and Nathan McCall from our days, the Ayer family here, Um, the Ayers family. Uh, Our days at Covenant, uh, we served together for seven and a half years, and it was very formative for me, and I look back on those Days with fond memories. Matt, uh, you all know this about him, but he is a great source of wisdom for, I'm sure for you all, he is for me when I'm struggling through different pastoral issues. He's uh, at the top of my list of people to call to help me think through uh, difficult situations. You just did that for me recently. So I thank you for that, Matt. Thank you for your friendship. Uh, It's really a privilege uh, to be preaching. I'm, I'm in between calls right now, actually doing some consulting work, so any chance I get to uh, stand in the pulpit, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, so it is with a heart of gratitude that we get to dig in here to this scripture passage. I, I'm going to just pick up from where you all uh, left off in uh, Genesis. We're looking at Genesis chapter 8 as we're seeing this, this, this great flood finally subsiding Um, and God bringing redemption to bear upon creation in this magnificent and really beautiful way. And the the main focus for me this morning as I looked at this passage, you know, there's many ways you can approach it. But for me, um, I really want to focus on the redeeming heart of God, the beautiful redeeming heart of God, one of love and mercy. Even after this tragic and catastrophic event, we see God's purposes in making all things new, and showing us that He is a God of second chances. He is a God who can redeem whatever you consider to be lost. Whether, it, whether it's through self-sabotage, whether it's through suffering because of the evil of this world, God can redeem what was lost. That's the God that we believe in, and He doesn't ask you to do the redemption. He says, if you'll trust in me, I will redeem all things. I will make all things new both in a personal way, in a corporate way, and then in a very historic way. God loves to redeem what we consider lost and bring life out of death. That's the point of this passage. His light shines through the darkness in the deepest and darkest recesses of our lives. He can even reach that point. Um, So with that in mind, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read our passage. Father, we do thank you for your word. I do ask that um, no matter what anyone in this room is experiencing, their own darkness, feeling overwhelmed or drowning in the flood of their own sin or the evil of this world, pray that you would encourage us, that you would remind us that you are a God who remembers You will never leave us or forsake us. These simple truths that have such eternal weight help us nourish our souls for your glory and for our good. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep 
and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all the flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may, be, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I'm sure many of you all followed along this past week as um, that sub that went down to see the Titanic, um, the five members upon uh, uh, that were aboard that uh, tragically perished. I personally have a, a curiosity for all things exploration and, and I'm kind of fascinated with the story of the Titanic, so I followed it. It was also on the front page of every news site that I read, but um, it, was, it was a fascinating um, story of these men taking this incredible risk to go and explore the Titanic, and sadly, it ended in catastrophe, um, and it ended in heartbreak. Um, it was in the deep and dark recesses of those dangerous waters that all hope was lost. And the hopeless romantic in me followed the story because I really wanted them to be rescued. I wanted to hear from them. I wanted to see them brought up and tell the story of what it was like to be stuck in that awful situation. I wanted desperately to hear a story of rescue. I was hoping it would actually serve as a great illustration as I was studying this passage of a ship that is seemingly lost at sea in the dark recesses of the ocean. These waters of judgment and God's wrath are moving this boat to and fro. Noah and his family wondering, is there going to be a rescue? When will this end? Will this end well? And that story was a reminder this week that in this life, in this side of the new heavens and the new earth, things do not always end well. In fact, most of the time, there ending in tragedy and catastrophe. 
They don't end like those, the story of the Chilean miners who were rescued or the Thai soccer team that were rescued from the cave they were exploring. We don't always get that story. And many of us, we've experienced that same reality in our own lives, that this, this is, life is not a movie. <laughs> um, there is pain and there's tragedy and there is death. So what hope do we have? You know, many people read this story of the flood and they think, how could you believe in a God that does that? That kills millions of innocent people. That judges people so severely with his wrath. Well, we know as the church that that's not what this story is about at all. This is a story about a holy God who is showing us that he hates sin. He hates the evil of this world, and he does something about it. He's not disinterested in it. He cares deeply about it. And when he flooded the world, it grieved the Spirit of God to have to do what was necessary to create a new beginning and to bring redemption to his creation. We believe that this is a story of God intervening to preserve life, to offer a new beginning, acting to redeem what was lost through one man's righteousness, to again give hope to a lost world. It's a story that prefigures the church and the gospel in brilliant and magnificent ways. As one family and one wooden ark is carried through the waters of judgment, as God seals them in to protect them from the deluge of darkness that brings death. This is a story about the very character of the God that we believe in. A God who takes sin seriously, who acts against it, who hates evil, but a God through, through whom redemption and new life and new beginnings come. We have to remember too, as we step into this, this story, who Moses wrote this book for. He wrote it for the people of God. As they are wondering wandering from Egypt to the promised land in these 40 years of wilderness. It is emblematic of our own lives. As we move through life to that promised land, we can find ourselves often questioning God. You know, Israel thought at certain points slavery would have been better than trusting God to keep his promises. When we choose our sin in this life, we are essentially saying to God, I think slavery is better. I don't trust you. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And I think what God was revealing to Israel then and even to us now is that it's not worth it. You don't have to take things into your own hands. You can trust God. Just as he kept his promise here, he will keep his promise to carry us safely through the judgment to the new heavens and the new earth. And he will provide what we need, even when we're terrified, even when we're living in the darkness or we're unsure or we're questioning God. Will you keep your promises? I mean, that's the ultimate question here. Can God be trusted? Would he redeem what Israel had lost? Can he redeem what you've lost? story serves to remind us that no matter what is lost in life, even those who are lost to death itself, 
all things will be redeemed for those who trust in God. He will restore what this life has taken and one day bring a greater redemption than even the one we see here, greater than the one we see here. It's a story about how God does his work of redemption. He does it in three ways. It's kind of the blueprint for redemption here. He remembers, then he recreates, and then he restores. Again, this is the heart of God. This is the character of God. First, he remembers. It's one very simple line in one verse of the story. God remembers. What does that even mean? To begin, we know that Noah was obviously a great man of faith. He trusted God when God told him to do something completely crazy that the outside world never understood. He was shamed for it, yet he believed. He spent a hundred (laughs) years, a full century, building this ark in the middle of the desert where it never rained. Trusting, just trusting alone that God would bring rain is a testament to this man's faith. Fortunately, Noah's faith is affirmed and confirmed when the rains come. But I'm sure in that moment, he's also pretty terrified. God's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. Something we don't think about much is the fact that even after the flood, Noah was left in the ark for nearly a year, on a boat for a year, waiting for the flood waters to subside. Months after the flood had happened, he and his family were alone in that smelly, non-hygienic, cramped wooden ark, wondering when God was going to speak. When was he going to show up? Again, that period of waiting. That's God's MO. He loves to make his people wait. We all know about that way too well in our own lives. But it is in that waiting that God does the work. So they had been drifting on this endless sea for almost half a year, riding upon the waves of God's wrath. The world of judgment taking place outside the ship was deadly. But being left in the ship had its challenges as well. It was not a paradise. Imagine drifting on a ship like that, having no idea when it would be over. Trying to care for your family, trying to lead your family through that. What did Noah do on a day-to-day basis? What did his family do when they were complaining? They were saying, what have you gotten us into? What sustained Noah? He believed the promise. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. He probably wondered if God had forgotten about him himself. Had God changed his mind? Had God decided to do away with him and his family as well? Why would God care about this one man and his family? This one ship, (laughs) this one thing that was alive. One commentator says this, far down in the unfathomable depths below lies a a, a dead and buried world. Noah shut up in his narrow prison seems to be abandoned to his fate. He cannot help himself. And in this universal visitation of sin, this terrible reckoning of a sinner, why should he obtain mercy? What is he that when all else are taken, that he should be left? Was he left to suffer and perish after all? Is he not a sinner like the rest? Does he not feel himself to be the chief of sinners? Noah's very spirituality would have opened him up to such feelings. And when he thought like this, he would have felt himself to be abandoned by his heavenly father. 
much more keenly than I or anyone else ever felt abandoned by an earthly father. I think some of us in seasons of trial must relate to Noah. In times of intense suffering, it's natural to wonder if God has forgotten about you. When is he going to show up and do what he said he would do? All of God's people from Israel in the desert to us today should find great comfort in this verse. God remembers. Now, this doesn't mean that God forgets. God didn't just wake up one day and say, oh yeah, Noah, he's out there. I should probably help him. This word for remembering here is synonymous with God's action, with his moving towards his people. It's not just a cognitive remembering of Noah. It is him moving towards Noah in redemption and love. We know this because when it talks about God remembering Abraham, he does what? He saves Lot. When God remembers Rachel, she conceives a child. When God remembers the crippled man in Acts, he heals him completely. When God remembers, God acts. And he acts in benevolence and love towards those who fear him. Why does God remember Noah? We're told that it's because Noah was the only righteous man left on the earth. What does it mean that Noah was righteous or considered righteous? It doesn't mean that he was perfect. It just means, and this is pretty astounding, he was the only one left that loved God on the planet. That's how bad things had gotten. That's how pervasive evil was. That's how destructive it was. God looked at man and he said, it's all evil. I can't let this continue on. Something drastic has to be done to bring redemption and to right this. So he brings the flood, but he brings that one righteous man. It doesn't even attribute that righteousness to his family. You notice they're covered by his righteousness. By his obedience, his family is brought through this with him. On that wooden ark, through the waters of judgment, in an overwhelmingly dark situation, important to point out that God remembering is not this mere recollection, it's his action. God's remembering always implies a move towards the object. The essence of God's remembering lives in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. The previous commitment he's acting upon is his covenant promise to bring ultimate redemption to the cosmos, to his creation, through a great rescuer. God remembers the suffering of his people. He will never leave us or forsake us. The opposite of remembering is to forsake. And God will not forsake us. He's very clear about that. And this redemption brings renewal to all things in this spectacular fashion. You know, there's many flood narratives in many cultures. And all of those narratives talk about the redemption that comes after that, coming by the power of man. Man having to make things right. Man having to re-up in their obedience and their commitment to their God to not make them mad anymore. Not this narrative. Not this flood story. This is about what God does for his people. And preserving them and restoring them 
in redeeming them. He has moved from regret to remembering in this spectacular fashion. And from that comes the second part of his redemption, which is recreation. He likes to take dead things and bring them to life. (laughs) He likes to take what's lost and restore it tenfold, a hundredfold. And so we have this amazing part of this chapter where you, you can literally, I don't have time to go into it, but you can literally kind of follow, it's, it's meant to hearken us back to the garden. You can follow the six days of creation with this story of, of recreation. From decreation to recreation, from destruction to life, from the waters, from, from even in this, this first part here, it says, and God made a wind blow. The Hebrew word for wind there is this, this word ruach. You can almost hear the breath, ruach. It means breath, life, spirit. The ruach hakodesh, the ruach Elohim, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. That's the word here. So the reader, Israel, in the wilderness, is meant to go back to the garden and remember what great things God did by His very breath by His Spirit, to from nothing bring life into existence by His very Word, by the power of His Word. And that's what He does here for Noah and his family. As the waters subside, the land appears, they rest on the mountain. I mean, all the imagery is there for us in both the garden and what we wait for in the new heavens and the new earth. And then he sends man out. Right? You see this, this wonderful image that we know, we know about the dove, the dove that comes down in Jesus' baptism, the form of the Holy Spirit. The dove comes here with this, this branch of peace, right? This olive branch, this olive leaf, representing the shalom that God has brought to the world. Through his destruction and his wrath, he brought this redemption of peace and hope. After 150 days, they wait on the boat. It finally, the waters finally subside. They see land. They see that they can get out. God, who had shut them in, now lets them out to enjoy this recreated earth. God has moved from malediction now to this benediction. It is good again. And he longs for his people to enjoy this goodness so he can pour out his mercy and his grace upon him. It reveals the very heart of God to us. He's a God abounding in steadfast love and mercy towards those who fear him. He loves to redeem what is lost. He is the only one who can do it. If we trust in him, we can stop exhausting ourselves trying to make our lives right. What God is calling us to is not to do better or to do more, but to surrender to His power in our lives. And so there's that hopeful reminder for us this morning that no matter what you have ruined in your life or failed or destroyed, whether it's your career or your family or your relationships or your very own conscience, God can recreate it. He can rescue it. Just as he rescued creation from its own hell here too, so he can rescue and redeem anyone who trusts in his saving power.
This whole story is emblematic of the salvation of God and how it works. From death to life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is recreated. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All by his power. He alone can restore what the storms have destroyed. As someone who lived through the Covenant school shootings, as a family with two children there, this is deeply meaningful to me. To rest in this. To look at utter destruction. The chaos of evil. To not have to live in fear. To go to things like Hallie Scruggs' birthday celebration at Chad's house, Chad and Jada's house yesterday. And to look at her picture and to feel that deep sadness and anger, but to know that's not where it ends. They will see the beautiful face of their daughter again because of the redeeming power of God. Through one man's righteousness, through one man's obedience, we all benefit. You know, the ark is symbolic of the church, right? Passing through those waters of judgment to this new creation. There's both a deeply personal hope here and a corporate one. And we see that after God remembers and recreates, he then restores life and purpose in us. That's what he does for Noah and his family. It's not over yet. It's not like, okay, see you guys later. He has very distinct purpose for them in this new created earth, right? Go, be fruitful and multiply. My promise is still true. My desire for you is still true. I want to co-rule creation with you. I have restored this for you and your benefit and your good and my glory. Go and work it. Enjoy it. It's really amazing that it's, God brings them back to this. But there's nothing. He doesn't create some new mandate for them right? He just restores the same one because it wasn't lost. Sin didn't win. Evil didn't ruin God's plans. He wasn't up in heaven while that boat was rocking along saying, I got I to gotta think of something. He brought it back to the very same place he meant it to be. For his people to live in obedience, to co-rule creation for, with him, to cultivate the land, the Adamah, Right? the ground, the earth. God tells Noah, it's for you to enjoy now. You go out in my favor. There's no more evil to shame you, to try and destroy you or defeat you or keep you from your purpose. It is new to enjoy. It is all worth it. And Noah's faith needs to be commended here. It wasn't perfect. Noah goes on to sin. He's not the perfect righteous one. He just is a type of the one who was to come, who would be perfectly righteous and perfectly obedient, which is Jesus himself. Noah prefigures Jesus for us to show us that God works through one man for the rest of us. He is our champion. Just as David went out on that battlefield against the evil Goliath, that giant, that overwhelming giant, so Jesus went in the wilderness for us as our champion to take on evil. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room discourse before his death, he says, I want you to abide in me. For what purpose? 
for the same purpose that Noah and his family had, to be fruitful and multiply. Again, his plans aren't changing. He's going to do what he promised. We see it all through history. Jesus says, I want you to abide in me. That means I want you to align your values and your loves with mine. I want your heart to be in line with mine. And then I want you to bear much fruit, that singular fruit, right? Not the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, because Jesus is the fruit of the Spirit. And he's saying, I want you to go out, and as you abide in me, I want you to reproduce me to the world. That's what I'm asking you to do. I am love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Go and love these things and promote these things and bear witness to the one who did it perfectly. And in your imperfection, all you're asked to do is repent and surrender and trust and know that there are new beginnings. His mercies are new every morning. God is saying, this is, I mean, this is the nature of the creational mandate. Go, reproduce me to the world. Be my ambassadors of peace and love and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Show the world what I'm like and how I love. Be merciful and full of grace. This has always been the outward-facing, overflowing heart of God for the world. Even one who judges sin so severely. This is the heart of God in the Old Testament. This is the heart of God for His people then, and this is the heart of God for His people now. Go through this wilderness that is called life and reproduce Jesus. He calls us to be the privileged means by which his love is reproduced in a world that so desperately needs it. There's no higher purpose for which to live. If you don't know your purpose, if you're struggling with your mission in life, this is it. Love what Jesus loves. Hate what Jesus hates. Noah's meant to be this, this second Adam, and this, again, this type of the ultimate second Adam, Jesus himself, taking God's love into the world. And I'll leave you with this. I think it's important to point out that Noah and his family were never removed from the judgment. There was no rapture. They had to pass through it. But they were protected by this wooden ark that covered them. They were hidden inside it until the judgment passed. This is our future as God's people as well. As God judged the earth with water here, he will, as the scriptures tell us, in the future judge the earth with fire. But take hope, Christian. Take hope, church. There's another wooden instrument of God's deliverance. The cross. And we are told that we are united with Jesus by faith, hidden with him by his work so that we do not have to fear what is to come. And we will pass through it to a recreated world, one that is fully redeemed and restored. That is the hope of the church. If you are doubting that hope, if you are in a place in life, you're like, man, I just don't know. You're not the first, and you won't be the last. God will keep his promises. This is our great hope. And our response should be what you all, I'm sure, will talk about next week. But what does Noah do? He doesn't go out of the ark and complain. He doesn't say, why did you do that to us? What's his first act? As God moved towards him in remembering and didn't forget him, Noah doesn't forget God, and he moves to worship, to make a sacrifice. Paul calls us to make our lives living sacrifices to God, a thank offering to God. Is that what your life is characterized as? Is it a thank offering to God?
for all that He has done. It can be, even if it never has been before. By, even this morning by faith, your life can be in thank offering to God. You can go out with His favor and His presence to do what He has called you to do, to be His ambassadors of this great power and peace and love and redemption to a world that so desperately needs it. Let's remember that this morning as we go to this table. Of all the things that Jesus could have done, he decided to set a table before us, a meal that just speaks to the heart of God for intimacy with his people. We are the family of God. Jesus is our elder brother, and he he longs for us to remember that this feast is just a small foretaste of that greater feast and that recreated earth new heavens and new earth, which we will enjoy perfect fellowship with the triune God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.